welcome to go. Turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 7. a sentence in the description of that prayer song the end of the author section that we just sang happy the preacher who has someone in his congregation who will earnestly pray or plead for that anointing when he rises to preach God's word and that's a encouragement to I think all of us to pray whoever we are listening to when we hear God's word that God would speak and teach us from his word. I hope that's your heart, whether it's during this time or Christian life hour or when we have a missionary come at any time, the word of God is opened. Uh, we certainly want the Lord to work and we want to have the, the spirit of that that prayer that we would be willing to receive what is spoken if it is truly God's word. I want to begin reading in Acts chapter 7, verse 44, down through the end of the chapter. We're going to consider the witness of Stephen. We've been considering the witness of Stephen. This is the dying testimony. So this is the end of his testimony to the Sanhedrin. And up to this point in Acts chapter 7, he has spoken about God's dealings with Abraham, God's dealings with the patriarchs, God's dealings through Moses, and Moses who he presents as this prophet who prophesied of a prophet like him, and Moses, as he prophesied, was himself rejected. And so the implication of Stephen he's going to make explicit in the end of his speech is that Moses was rejected. A prophet like him is coming, which means that the prophet who is coming also will be rejected, among other things. Of course, this is Christ, the prophet like Moses. But if you remember that Stephen was accused of speaking blasphemous things against God, against Moses, against the law, and against the holy place or the temple. We're coming to the end where Stephen's going to zero in on the tabernacle. He calls it the tabernacle of testimony. But as you continue, of course, we understand that when it became a temple, it was called the temple of God in Jerusalem, built by Solomon. That's not the temple that they are worshiping in uh, in the New Testament. It's actually been Solomon's temple was destroyed. Another one was rebuilt in its place. But they attached great uh, value to the physical location, the temple structure. And Stephen's argument here, as we will see it, 
is his defense against whatever he has said and what, of course, what Christ had said as well about the temple. So beginning in verse 44, Stephen says, Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. Being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then, falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts today, and truly may his spirit work among us. Stephen, in his closing testimony, draws attention to the tabernacle of testimony, verse 44. And from verse 44 and down through verse 50, he is giving a demonstration scripturally of the inadequacy of any house to house the Most High God. There was a sort of temple olatry that was taking place in this time by the Jewish people. They certainly valued the temple. And sort of like in the days of Jeremiah, they attached some significance to just being in that place. The days of Jeremiah, when he preached the temple sermon, he said, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. He's quoting the words of the people as if to say that because I'm in the temple of Yahweh, that I'm okay. Well, the Lord was going to destroy that temple. And as Stephen argues here, as he's been talking about God as the God of glory, who is certainly over all of the nations, specifically coming and revealing himself to Abraham and to this nation, where God has been 
in terms of his presence with his people is not always here at the temple site in Jerusalem. In fact, that's part of his point as he goes through this brief history is that the tabernacle was a moving tabernacle. It was in various places. Look at verse 44 as we think about its presence in the wilderness. He said, our fathers, he's talking about the national fathers, the patriarchs of Israel, had and, and by that, I don't mean that first generation, but those who received the tabernacle, those fathers. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. And when we think about the latter part of the verse, remember the writer of Hebrews talks about it. And of course, the Lord specified that the tabernacle was not to be uh, done and innovated upon. There wasn't to be anything that Moses or some other artistic person got an idea and added into the, that tabernacle. Because that tabernacle, as Hebrews uh, details, is a picture of heaven. The tabernacle is a shadow, and the substance is heaven, and what heaven is like is casting a shadow on earth. The tabernacle is a picture of what heaven is like. That's why we have in the descriptions of the tabernacle cherubim that are woven into the uh, the, the curtains. And, of course, the, the, the mercy seat itself has also has angels on it. That's a picture of what heaven is like. And what Stephen says here is that our fathers had the tabernacle in the wilderness. They were given it in the wilderness. It wasn't in the land. It wasn't in the place where they're now worshiping in Jerusalem in Stephen's day. No, when God originally gave the plans for that and when they constructed it, it was a moving building in the sense that they moved it wherever they went. And I got curious as to what or why Stephen called it the Tabernacle of Testimony. We might refer to it just as the Tabernacle but he specifically says the tabernacle of testimony. And if you look at the Old Testament, you'll see at times it's called the tent of the testimony. And in Exodus 25, I believe it's because the Lord said that they were to put the ark of testimony into the tent. And so when you think about all of those valuable things that were in the tabernacle, the furniture, the curtains, uh, the altar, you know, all of those things that were there. And of course, the Ark of the Covenant. What was the most precious thing of all of those things? You might say, well, the gold or whatever the other uh, things there were that were placed there. The high priest, of course, whenever he was there, had the breastplate with all those precious stones. But I think you could say the most precious thing that they had was the very testimony of God written on stones, placed into the Ark of the Testimony, or the Ark of, we call it the Ark of the Covenant, because in content, it was a covenant. And so when Stephen here is speaking about the tabernacle, he's actually highlighting something about the tabernacle that made the tabernacle valuable, and that was because the very words of God inscribed and recorded on stone were, were in that place. This is the tabernacle of testimony. 
But it didn't stay just in the wilderness. Verse 45, though it was present in the wilderness, it was also present in the land of promise. Verse 45, it says, And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. And if you read through Judges, 1 Samuel, you can see the tabernacle moving and then finding a location, Shiloh, but then when Israel fought against the Philistines, the ark was taken and the temple or the tabernacle itself was not in use for a time because that most valuable part of it was missing and they did not have for a period of time a place to worship. But you remember David, as the Lord established him as king over Israel and built him a house. He had a literal house that the people built him. And when he looked at his own house of cedar, he recognized that while he was sitting in a house, that the ark of God, which had been recovered, was not in any kind of a permanent dwelling. And so he asked the Lord, and we see in Second Samuel, the early chapters, David asking the Lord about building him a house, and that results in, among other things, the Lord giving him the Davidic covenant. But the way Stephen presents it here is that though David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob, it wasn't David's place to build a house. And instead, of course, it was Solomon, verse 47, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. So the presence of the place where God is worshipped, first in the wilderness and then in the land and then still in a tent, David asks to build a house, but the Lord refuses, but allows Solomon to do it. But even as Solomon built the house, remember there was, if you read through that portion of scripture where Solomon is building the house for God, do you remember what? he said as he was dedicating it. If you turn, keep a finger here and turn over to 1 Kings chapter 8. There's, of course, the procession as they bring everything into the temple Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 22, is praying a prayer of dedication. And as he prays this prayer of dedication, verse 27, after all of this beautiful building has been built, he asks the question, verse 27, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. So while certainly they attached great worth and value to the temple of God and the worship of God, Solomon understood upon dedicating it and prayed in this way that there's no way that this building could somehow house the Almighty. It is his house. 
but the heavens and the heavens of heavens cannot even contain him. Turn back to Acts chapter 7. And this is partly Stephen's point as he expresses in verse 48. He says, however, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. And then he doesn't cite Solomon, but what he does cite is a passage in Isaiah, and he quotes it for us here. And here's the testimony. He's drawn attention to the tent of testimony, the words of God that were housed there. Now he's going to give divine testimony about the house of God. Solomon said it, but what does the Lord say about any house on earth? Verse 49, here's God's testimony. Heaven is my throne, and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? And what's the answer to that question, or those questions? Is there a way to construct a house for one who sits in heaven and earth is his footstool? And then he appeals, of course, to the fact that he created all these things, including the heavens and the earth. He doesn't need a house. In fact, Solomon's statement, as you look at the statement that Solomon made, he's actually saying there's nothing that's big enough that could house God. Because God is, and this is the scriptural doctrine, God is immense, He's far greater than anything that he has made. He fills the universe. And I don't know that I could say and beyond. I'm getting beyond my own understanding, even thinking about the immensity of God, which has to do with the infinity of God, the greatness of God. He has no limits, cannot be limited. This is his infinity. God's infinity means he has no limitations or restrictions in time or space. He's eternal, that's infinite with regard to time, and he's also omnipresent or immense, which means he's infinite with regard to space. God is transcendent. He stands outside and above time and space, and yet Scripture also presents him as imminent, which means that he is near to us. And though he is God most high, he is also, as he sends his son into the world, Emmanuel, God with us. And yes, there are certainly times in which God manifests his presence in a local place at a time, but that doesn't mean that God is somehow limited to that place. It means that he's appearing there for the direction of his people to do his will or to manifest his glory. But what we're talking about as we think about the The nature of God is the God of glory. And remember, that's how Stephen started. And God cannot be limited to a location. God can't be limited to the temple of Jerusalem. And God can't even be limited only to this earth. He's the God of heaven and earth. And as he testified himself, heaven is his throne, earth is the footstool. This globe that we live on is just a footstool for him. And of course, those are images to convey his greatness, his glory. And as Stephen presents these truths to these individuals who are listening on and attaching some significance to the temple as if this is the place that God dwells and therefore 
it is holy, and there's a sense in which, yes, it is, but God doesn't only dwell here, and as God's people worship here, they must be themselves holy. Stephen comes to the end having defended his own teaching, having responded to the charges that he is somehow speaking against the temple. If this temple is destroyed like others were in the past, can God build a new one? Yes, but even that one isn't going to house God. It's going to be a testimony to his presence, but that doesn't mean that he's only there and not in other places. God is a global God. He's not the God only of the Jews. He's also the God of the Gentiles. So as Stephen has responded to these charges, he comes to the end and he expresses to them that they are guilty of sinning against God and resisting the Holy Spirit and disobeying Him. So from this first or this last argument that he's making in his speech, he then turns to charge not only these men, but Israel throughout its history with persistent rebellion, culminating in its rebellion against their own Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what he says in verse 51. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. So this is the posture of the ones that he's speaking to. Remember who he's speaking to? Look back at verse 1 of the chapter. The high priest is leading this session. And look back at verse 15 in the previous chapter. It says, fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council, or that's the Sanhedrin. This is the rulers of the nation. Present would be those who themselves put Jesus Christ to death. They turned him over to Pilate and had him crucified. So Stephen is talking to that same group of people, representative of the nation, and as he argues, right in line with their fathers in terms of their rebellion. Their stubbornness, when he uses the word stiff-necked, he's talking about someone who stiffens and hardens themselves against authority. Second Chronicles 36, verse 13, speaking of a king of Israel, he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. Jeremiah 7, verse 25, Since the day your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have sent all my servants, the prophets, daily rising early and sending them, Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. Jeremiah 7. And I saw an illustration of a stiff neck this week. As I went outside with a little halter for my puppy. And she did not like that. So I put the halter, the way this thing worked, it goes around her neck and then a little piece around her nose. And it's really not meant to be painful, but she did not want to go anywhere. So I'm just trying to walk slowly and she's pulling back like this. I'm going forward, but she's going back and looking at me like, what are you doing to me? Talk about a stiff neck. We went around the house four times. She started to get the picture the fourth time. 
But until then, it, I, I was trying to be careful, certainly not to hurt her, but she just would not have it. But we're talking about the response of the people of Israel to God. Notice in Stephen's statement here, it's to the Holy Spirit that they are resisting against. And he puts them in line with all of their fathers. He says, you are doing just as your fathers did. I don't believe he's only talking about the generation immediately preceding this generation but actually going back into the history of Israel. In fact, you could look all the way back through Stephen's speech, and with Joseph and the rest of the patriarchs, remember, they resisted his rule. They weren't going to have it. Remember, even in Moses' day, there was a rejection of Moses' rule, even challenges to his authority, though he had been proven by God by miracles to be a prophet of God. And Stephen here is charging these individuals with being rebellious, and he uses also the word uncircumcised. That actually places them in another category with the Gentiles. It's like saying they're outside of the nation of Israel, although he says uncircumcised in heart and ears. He's talking about their unresponsiveness, their insensitivity to the truth of God. And by the way, these are those who proclaimed and taught the Word of God. The ones who had the Word of God. So I'd put it this way, those who possessed the law of God and heard the prophets of God, this generation is witness to the words and works of the Messiah of God. They rejected it all. Why? Because of their hardness of heart because they resisted the Holy Spirit, because of their own sinful hearts in response to what God told them to do. Now, we need to be careful, don't we? Because we look at someone and we could point at them, but I think we have to ask the question, is this me too? And of course, there could be someone here today who's resisting the truth of God and rejecting the Messiah, turning away from Jesus Christ as the one who has come into the world as God's universal king and only savior. You could be resisting that message today and hard-hearted in your willingness to receive what God has said. And as the scripture teaches that if you do not believe on the Son, you do not have eternal life. And God's wrath rests upon you. Unless you turn from that posture, unless you turn from that sin, you will spend an eternity in the lake of fire. But maybe you've come to Christ. Maybe you've put your trust in God's Messiah. Maybe as you look at the, what we read in Matthew 16 this morning, you can say with Peter, I believe that Jesus is the son of the living God. And you have been blessed by God's grace to know that and believe that. And if that's true with you, the question would be then, are you following and obeying him? Are you submitting to the one that you have called Lord? 
Are you sensitive to the truth of God? Do you listen to and heed his word? Or is there something of that old nature, and it is in all of us, of being stiff-necked and stubborn and rebellious? And I want to just call you to lay down those weapons and yield yourself to the Lord. And be, I heard someone praying this week. It was a beautiful thing. Lord, help me to be soft to your word. Help me to be responsive to the truth. Are you listening to God's word? Are you listening to those who teach you God's word? Calvin, as he commented on this text, said that this passage shows us what great account the Lord makes of his word and how reverently he would have us to receive it. Therefore, lest like giants we make war against God, let us learn to hearken to the ministers by whose mouth he teacheth us. And without trying to be self-serving here, because we have more than one pastor here, you need to listen to your pastors. You need to listen to those who are teaching God's word to you truly. And not be stiff-necked. And not be stubborn, but be humble and teachable and willing to receive what God has said. Now, I think when Stephen goes more specifically in verse 52, we see actually how this nation was resisting the Holy Spirit. How do we know they were resisting? Is he talking about something internal where the Holy Spirit is working and Stephen somehow is aware of that by God's Spirit, letting him know, and he knows that. No, there's objective evidence through time that the nation has resisted the Holy Spirit. What is that objective evidence? It's that their fathers, verse 52, persecuted the prophets. Rather than listening and heeding the words of the prophets, they persecuted the prophets. You can certainly see that in Moses' day as he spoke to the people, and they either didn't listen to him or challenged his authority or murmured or whatever it might have been. You can see it at other times in history. For instance, as Jeremiah is thrown into a dungeon or thrown into a muddy cistern, there's even a time when Jeremiah is asked to tell a group of people the word of God, and he responds with, you're not going to listen to God's word. You're not going to obey God's word. I know you. And they said, no, we will. And he says, okay, but I'm going to testify against you if you don't. And so he tells them the word of God, and it's basically like they say, okay, no, we're not going to do that. Micaiah, 1 Kings 22, as he prophesied before Ahab and Jehoshaphat, was publicly slapped across the face as he prophesied by the Spirit of God. And, of course, other prophets were killed. Notice in verse 50. Two, it says, which one of the uh, prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one. We don't even know all of the names of the prophets who were killed. We just know there were many who were killed. We can certainly read through Hebrews chapter 11 and see implication of that. But you also see in Elijah's complaint that he believed that he was the only one left and that Jezebel had killed all the prophets of the Lord. The Lord, of course, had 
others like Elisha, who he was going to call to follow after and continue the message, and he was going to deal with that in Israel. But Elijah was looking at a situation where many, many prophets had been persecuted or killed, and he was being persecuted. And who was persecuting him? It was the people of God. Obviously, Jezebel snuck in as a foreign queen and idolatrous, and but she influenced Ahab, and the nation was filled with idolaters. Isaiah, according to history, maybe the reference in uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, was sawn in two by Manasseh. Nehemiah says in Nehemiah 9.26, as he's kind of given a summary statement, but they became disobedient, rebelled against you, and cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who had admonished them so that they might return to you, and they committed great blasphemies. And we could look at the persecution of the prophets in the Old Testament, the killing of the prophets. But Stephen's point is not to dwell on that here. He actually describes the prophets with this phrase, those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one. It's these prophets who spoke for God, who were looking forward to the coming of the righteous one. Now, who's the righteous one? You look at the text here, if you have translation that uses capital letters here, and it is capital R and capital O, righteous one. Who is that? The context, obviously, this is Christ. He does say, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. And though John the Baptist was slain also in this generation, that was Herod. This obviously refers to Christ, who is the righteous one. That's not only Stephen's opinion. Later on, Paul uses that same term of Christ, the righteous one. But if you turn over to Isaiah 53 for a moment, just want you to note the Old Testament context for this title of Christ. Of course, Isaiah 53, some have called the gospel according to Isaiah. It certainly is about Jesus when Philip preached to the Ethiopian eunuch. He'd been reading it, and he said, is this man talking about himself or someone else? And then it says, Philip took from the same scripture and preached to him Jesus. So this is about Jesus. In verse 11, it says, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. This is a servant song. Jesus is the suffering servant. There are other titles revealed of Jesus in the book of Isaiah, but here is this righteous one. He's the righteous one. He's the one who bears, verse 11, the iniquities of his people. And if you go back and look at verses 5 and 6, of course, there's further testimony to what he did. Look at verse 5. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each, one of us, each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Now, who is this person? Well, he's the suffering servant. He is suffering as a substitute in the place of sinners. 
And the only reason that has value is because he's also the righteous one. He never sinned. Hebrews says he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. And it is through the sinless suffering servant who is our substitute that he he offers his sacrifice and is accepted because he was righteous, he earned our righteousness, and he also died in our place, which means he paid the debt for our sins. And by that, he secures salvation for us. And I just ask you, have you believed that message? Have you believed in the righteous one and his suffering on your behalf and accepted what he did on your behalf as he obeyed the law and as he suffered the punishment of the law in your place? Have you believed that? That is the gospel message. That's how we obtain righteousness. It's not a righteousness that we earn ourselves. It's a righteousness we receive. That's why we're justified. We're declared righteous. And why are we declared righteous? Because of the righteous one. Turn, if you would, back to Acts chapter 7. So what is Stephen preaching here? Just by a title of Christ, he's preaching the gospel, and he's also charging sin. In fact, the very sin itself to this generation. Notice at the end of verse 52, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. So he is charging this generation, and of course they were guilty. Read back into the Gospels and see it's this generation of leaders that turned Jesus over to Pilate, had him crucified, paid off Judas, but Stephen's not done. He charges them with further sin by having received God's law and yet not keeping it. Look at verse 53. He says, you who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Now, Stephen's statement here raises attention to something that the Bible doesn't give a great amount of detail about, and that is the presence of angels when the law was given. And I say that the Bible doesn't give a lot of detail about it. You will find references to what Stephen is talking about there in verse 53 in Paul's teaching. Paul mentions it in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 19. Hebrews chapter 2 also talks about angels being involved in the giving of the law in some way. And if I could just say this, this is not talking about the angel of the Lord, which we've been looking at earlier on in Acts chapter 7, but actual finite spirits, servants of God, who are in some way involved in the giving of the law. Uh, I could read to you from Psalm 68, verse 17, which says this, The chariots of God are myriads. Thousands upon thousands, the Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness. The chariots of God referring to those who are serving God, and they do have fiery chariots to come pick up a prophet if they're going to take him into heaven. Remember the angels that surrounded that city where Elisha was and his servant didn't see it, but Elisha was able to see all those angels, right? But that text in the Psalms refers to the Lord being among them as at Sinai. And if you turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 33, Deuteronomy 33, this is one text which would draw attention to it. 
And here's the man who God gave the privilege of coming up on the mountain with him. Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 1. Now this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the sons of Israel before his death. He said, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned upon them, or on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran. And he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. At his right hand, there was flashing lightning for them. Indeed, he loves the people. All your holy ones are in your hand and they followed in your steps. Everyone receives of your words. Moses charged us with the law of possession for the assembly of Jacob. And he was king in Jeshurun. That's a reference to Israel. When the heads of the people were gathered, the tribes of Israel together. And without getting fully into the context here of Moses' blessing and song, the point that I'm making is that as you look at verse 2, when God comes, who does he come with? His holy ones, his angels. That's how that has been interpreted in connection with their involvement in the giving of the law. Uh, one writer said that Stephen, Paul, uh, may have known what they knew from an oral tradition. It's not clear as to how exactly they knew it. They may have also, through the psalm, understood that somehow that God was with his angels at Sinai. So back in Acts chapter 7, again, verse 53, you who received the law as ordained by angels, this is the idea that angels were somehow involved mediating the law to Moses from God, and then they receiving it from Moses ultimately. There was that, that presence of heavenly messengers that brought this law to them, which in addition to Moses would have been a a, a pretty striking thing if you got a message from heaven, right? The law from heaven. How do I know it's from heaven? Well, angels were involved in delivering it. And if you got a message delivered to you by an angel, as he's saying the law was, what would you do with that? Would you follow it like Joseph and Mary did in the Gospels? Or would you reject it? And would you disobey it? And Stephen's point in verse 53 of Acts chapter 7, the last words that he said that, that, that really cut them to the quick, it says. He says, you who received the law as ordained by angels, you took this as a heavenly message, and yet you didn't keep it. You disobeyed it. You refused to obey. You resisted the Holy Spirit. You're stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. And you're just like your fathers. And they killed the prophets and the those who announced the coming of the righteous one, and you have become the murderers and betrayers of the righteous one himself. And at this moment, when they're charged with breaking the law by someone, they're trying according to the law. It's like Stephen has turned the tables. Who's really on trial here, right? Stephen is now presenting a case and demonstrating to them that the real breakers of the law are the ones who are sitting in front of him trying him. And they won't have it. And so what we see following this final rebuke by Stephen is a visceral reaction. Look at verse 54. Instinctive action. 
spontaneous, you might say a gut reaction to what Stephen says, verse 54. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. So certainly there's conviction here because Stephen is convicting them of sin. He's declaring them guilty. Whether or not they're willing to believe it, the very suggestion of it makes them angry. And that's why we see them at the end of verse 54, gnashing their teeth. When someone grits their teeth, uh, demonstrating that they are angry, they're grinding their teeth. You can see a person just kind of angry, and that's how they're expressing their anger, this visceral reaction. And if you were looking at an august body of men who had the capability of putting you to death and executing you, and you just said something, and that's what they looked like. Do you think you'd be paying attention to what's going on? What's amazing here is that Stephen, after he says what he says, and they have this response, Stephen's attention is not on what Luke is describing in the verse. There's something else that catches Stephen's attention altogether. What is it? Verse 55. Suddenly, verse 55, it says, being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. That's what has got his attention. Stephen full of the Holy Spirit, that means he's under the power and control of the Spirit of God, and his gaze is lifted up, and he gets to do with his eyes what we desire to do by faith. He gets to turn his eyes upon Jesus and look full into his wonderful face. And of course, that's going to distract him from anything that's going on on earth. And what a wonderful sight to see the face of the Son of Man, of Jesus himself, the righteous one, to whom he has been seeking to glorify and who he is testifying about. Spurgeon said on this text, they may gnash their teeth, but they cannot disturb that settled gaze. Their noise and vehemence may roar like the raging waves of the sea, but from the serene depth of his inward peace, his soul looks upward to the eternal throne and is ravished with unutterable delight. He despises the tumult of the people, not because he's contemptuous towards them, but because his whole soul is swallowed up in blissful adoration of his God. He looks up to heaven and what he beholds through its open portals makes him careless of the bloodthirsty foes below. Wondrous picture. These men who are clenching their teeth and angry, they're looking at him after he made this charge and suddenly his eyes are lifted up to heaven. And he can't take his sight off of his Lord. And he testifies. So that's Luke's description in verse 55. But it's the testimony of Stephen, his witness, that is now going to be part of this scene. Part of the testimony that would have gone on record if there was a court reporter. Because Stephen is, yes, looking up into heaven, but now he's going to say something And it's an interesting statement in light of their history, the light of the history of the ones who he's talking to. What does he say? Verse 56, he says, And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. 
Now, according to verse 55, it's Jesus standing at the right hand of God. But according to verse 56, it's the Son of Man. And so this is the same person. You remember that the Son of Man was the title that Jesus often used for himself as he talked about himself, the Son of Man, as he would predict his crucifixion and death and resurrection, he would say the Son of Man. The Son of Man came uh, to seek and to save that which was lost. The Son of Man came to minister, not to be ministered unto. Uh, even the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. But that title, Son of Man, has roots back in Daniel chapter 7. I think we're familiar with this. But in Daniel chapter 7, one like a son of man comes up to the ancient of days and receives universal dominion. The power and right to rule over the nations. This is the son of man who has ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. At least according to the scriptures, that's often what he's doing. He's seated there. Well, what does the scripture say here? He's not seated. He's actually standing. That's an unusual position for him to be standing at the right hand of God. Even the psalmist, as he declared this presence of the Messiah at the right hand of God, he said, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. But now he's standing. And I have always taken this, as I've studied this in the past, I've always taken it to mean that he is rising to honor Stephen as Stephen is testifying to the truth. That's how I heard it interpreted. And I come to understand more views. I'm not going to go through all of them, but I, in reading through some of the various views as to why Christ is now standing in heaven while Stephen is testifying on earth, one view is that he's rising to greet Stephen because Stephen's about to enter into his presence. And of course, the Son of Man knows that Stephen is on trial here for his life, and he knows what's going to happen, and so he's rising to greet him. Another view is that he's actually confessing Stephen because Stephen is confessing him before men. That's what the Scripture says in Matthew, therefore, Everyone who confesses me before men, I also will confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father's in heaven. One writer went on to say, that is to say, Jesus stands up as a witness or advocate in Stephen's defense. Stephen appeals from the adverse judgment of the earthly court, and in the heavenly court, this member of the Son of Man community is already being vindicated by the head of that community. In other words, there's a judge above these earthly judges, and he's judging contrary to what they're judging. No, Stephen's right. The judges on earth are pursuing the execution of Stephen, whereas the judge of all the earth is going to vindicate him. And of course, that will be seen as he rises from the dead one day. By the way, speaking of the rising from the dead, you realize the implication of Stephen's statement. Listen to what he says, verse 56. Behold, I see the heavens open up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He is alive. He's alive. Just like the apostles had said, the resurrection is true. He ascended into heaven 
And there he is, as Scripture says he would be, at the right hand of God. This is the Messiah of God who promised to be at the right hand of God. And he is at the right hand of God. He is alive. So there's a testimony right to them again of the resurrection of Christ. And what's even more interesting is that Jesus, as Jesus was answering the question of the high priest on his trial, do you remember what he said? Remember what he said when he was asked regarding his identity? Remember the high priest said, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you've said it yourself, Matthew 23. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So the very text of Scripture which preceded their charge of blasphemy is about the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Father. And Stephen is now testifying. He's there. He's standing, but he's there. And of course, they wouldn't have it. In fact, they're cut to the quick and gnashing their teeth in verse 54. But following this statement, verse 56, they this is kind of an unusual think about what's happening here. They're crying out with a loud voice. They're covering their ears and they're rushing at him. It's kind of an unusual image. I mean, imagine doing that. Cover my ears, running at him, all together, what a scene. All at the same time, it says at the end of the verse, with one impulse. And then they take him to the place of execution. And Stephen doesn't die immediately. In fact, we find two prayers of Stephen at the end of this chapter. And stay with me. This is beautiful text. Testifying to the love that Stephen had for even the ones who were executing him, the truly Christian character that he had, as well as his trust in Christ. Look at what he says. Look what Luke says as he records this. It says, when they driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. There are those who attach some significance to that, that just like Christ was taken out of the city to be crucified, I don't know that we need to make a lot of that. It is interesting that he's being cast out of the city but certainly a citizen of a heavenly city. They began stoning him. The reason for the language there, they began, means that this started. And as it started, there were things that ha- that were happening. Obviously, the way that they proceeded was with witnesses who would take off their garments so that they could throw the stones. The witnesses were testifying to the guilt of the individual, and it was a legal proceeding. And as they're testifying and laying their coats at the person who seems to be managing this execution, they're laying them at the feet of a young man. And that young man's name is Saul. Of all people. Someone whom we much better know as Paul. The apostle to the Gentiles. Witness on this occasion participating in the execution of Stephen, giving forth his voice that, yes, this was justified, actually taking the garments and placing them at his feet as testimony that he's agreeing with this, that they should proceed. And verse 59, it says, they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
So there's two dying prayers here from a man who's being pummeled with stones. Until he's kneeling, he's standing. And he's testifying again to the resurrection of Jesus because he's calling on Jesus. Not only is he testifying to the resurrection, but he's testifying to the power of Jesus to be able to receive his spirit from his body into heaven where he is. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. There's a similarity there between what Jesus prayed. Remember, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But he's not praying to the Father. He's praying to Jesus. And yes, rightly to Jesus, because Jesus also is God. He's the Son of God. And as Stephen prays to him and says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. What a wonderful truth it is to see in God's word those who are trusting in Jesus. And of course, we believe Jesus as the good shepherd, as the Lord of heaven and earth, could certainly receive the spirit of one of his servants and take care of him in death. That was Stephen's confidence. And I would ask you, do you have that confidence if suddenly you were to have the expectation of imminent death? But you could make a prayer. You could offer up a prayer to God. Would you say to God, receive my spirit? Do you have the confidence to do that? And that he could do that? He can do that. He's the Lord of life. He's the resurrection and the life. At his voice, when he calls, the graves will be emptied. This is Christ, our almighty Christ, who, yes, he can take a soul to himself. Stephen is confident of that. And then notice Stephen's Christian love. And not to, I'm not talking about a love for other Christians, but the character of his life to show love to those, his enemies. This prayer and the context is a beautiful prayer because as he prays, his posture is on his knees. You might say, well, if I was being hit, hit by stones, I'd be falling down too. But he could have fallen all the way down. He could have tried to hide and move from the stones that are being thrown at him. But it's apparent that Luke is drawing attention to his posture here as he prays and cries out with a loud voice. What's his focus? It's not imprecation. It's not a curse. It's intercession and love for his enemies. Just like his master had said, you shall love your neighbor. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Yes, you should love your neighbor. Beyond that, Jesus said, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Sometimes we look at Stephen's statements in the verses 51 through 53, and we might detect some righteous indignation, and there may have been. But for him in the very end to be falling on his knees, imagine, I'm going to help us all imagine this, on his knees and crying out with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Imagine 
Saul standing nearby? Watching that happen? What is with this guy? It may very well have been one of the pricks that God used in Saul's life to bring him to Christ. There certainly was a fruit to this prayer. When he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them, that doesn't mean the Lord's just going to erase their sins. But if they pray and cry out for mercy for what they've done, as Paul later did, God would remove that guilt. I believe that's what Stephen's praying for. Just like Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Augustine said, if it weren't for this prayer, the church would not have had Paul. Calvin didn't want to go that far, but he did say there was fruit to Stephen's prayer. And Paul's pardon is evidence that it was not in vain. There are many martyrs who died praying. What a way to die. But I would say this as well. What a way to live. Trusting in God. Believing in God. These truths about God. If you trust in God and you believe in God, then what what really is death? How does Luke describe it here at the end of the verse? Having said this, he fell asleep. That's a euphemism for death. It's not the teaching of soul sleep. Stephen's spirit, as he prayed, would leave his body and enter into heaven, where the Son of Man is. But the word sleep implies that there will be an awakening, and there certainly will be. If you believe in the resurrection and the life, you will be resurrected. And that is, in part, Luke's testimony to the gospel message to the truth of the resurrection as as Stephen dies, he simply falls asleep. His soul enters into heaven, and they went on to bury him in chapter 8. But someday that body is going to be reunited with that spirit, perfected, And we will see Stephen as the first martyr of the church who died for the sake of his testimony to Jesus. It's a beautiful scene, but I want to encourage us to just ask the Lord for faith like that. Certainly a faith in the truths that Stephen proclaimed, because to believe in those truths is really to believe in the gospel message. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this record of Stephen's martyrdom. We thank you for his faith, testimony of his faith. Thank you for his testimony to the Son of Man. And we do pray, Lord, if there's someone here today who has yet to trust in that message of Christ, his death on behalf of sinners, his resurrection, the promise of forgiveness of sins for all those who turn from their sins and believe in his name. We pray if there's someone here who's not yet believed that, that today would be the day of their 
salvation. And for us who believe, Lord, we trust that even the preaching of Christ is for us a joy. We rejoice in Christ Jesus. We pray that we might desire and preach Christ ourselves to those around us and even to ourselves as we preach the gospel to ourselves and believe the truth that you've given us in your word. Do, Lord, what only you can do by the power of your spirit in our lives. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.